Right now, our political commentators are with us. It is Neil Jones and Bridget Morton, who uh, constitute our commentary team this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morena. Hard to get away. This is the traditional time of year, the traditional start of year, Ratana, the treaty, uh, sorry, the uh, Waitangi festivities, etc. But hard to get away from the various political parties' um, positions on some pretty key matters uh, confronting the country right now, particularly confronting Māori. Hard to go Ratana, hard to talk about Waitangi without talking about the treaty principles debate. How is it playing for whom and what is the significance? Well, we saw David Seymour's State of the Nation speech yesterday where he promoted his uh, treaty referendum. Um, I have to say the most charitable interpretation I have of what Seymour's doing is that he fundamentally misunderstands the treaty and possibly hasn't read it. Um, he's sort of setting up a, a false binary here, which is that either it's a free market libertarian property rights document, or it's an equal, or it's a partnership between races whereby one race has privilege over the other, and we have to choose. And actually, the treaty is neither of those things. The treaty is was a, an agreement between the crown and chiefs, which fundamentally was about protecting the economic and cultural toonga of Maori. And that is why it's relevant today, is because every, and I think this is important to go through before we get to the politics of it, the story of every colonised people is one of assimilation or marginalisation. And what the treaty does is it says that the state has to carve out a space for Māori to be Māori and for Māori to have a say in the life of the country. And that's why this debate really sort of gets to the core of Māori rights and empowerment in New Zealand and why there has been such a response by Māori and by actually New Zealanders across from, from all different backgrounds to what this treaty principles referendum is unleashing. And so I think, I think that, is, that is a very damaging debate that's opening up and I think it puts Seymour in a sort of a populist position where he's looking to exploit this moment for political gain. And I think he genuinely believes it, however wrong-headed he is. And I think it puts Luxon in a very difficult position where he is someone who's entered politics to be a uniter, is how he sees himself. He sees himself as someone who wants to devolve power to Māori as part of his localism initiative, and he's someone who wants to focus on the economy, and he risks, I think, overseeing a debate that is hugely divisive to New Zealand social fabric. He said that himself, that it's an unhelpful and divisive debate, and I think he risks undermining his whole government's agenda and derailing it. Right. That's, uh, I'm going to anticipate the probable email we'll get saying he has read the treaty, so I <laughs> presume he has. The problem, everyone is... I, I was a bit tongue-in-cheek. I, but, I understand. But, but, the problem we've all got is everyone's got their own view on it, um, A, on its meaning, and B, on what's happened since. So who was it this morning who said it's been debated since the day it was signed? The latest debate seems to talk a lot about what has happened since the 1980s, Bridget, with uh, various um, parts of our constitutional network, including the courts, interpreting um, and then uh, wanting to apply principles, including doing so uh, in law and instructions to government departments and so forth. But stay with the bigger picture at the moment about what what you see happening here and, and how it is unfolding for whom. Well, I think just touching on... Two things. First, of I think Neil, you know, presented 
a interpretation of the treaty and I think that's the danger that we have is that I think a lot of people will agree with what Neil stated but how that actually is implemented in modern day decisions is actually where the rubber is hitting the road and I think that's what you're talking about is it's really those many of those decisions since the 1980s about what it actually means for different people and how they interact in either a democratic society or different property rights or all of those sort of things. Can I quickly clarify and come back to you? I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss and debate the treaty and its meaning in 21st century New Zealand. My criticism of what Seymour's doing is it bears no relation to the text of either the English or the Māori version that anyone credible would recognise. Well, I think there is actually a number of scholars that do recognise it, because I do want to say that I think whilst I don't necessarily agree with where Act's going and whether a referendum is going to achieve what they think it's going to achieve, I do think there has actually been a lot of scholars that actually have inputted into Act's interpretation and I don't think it's useful to just sort of bash that away and make those sort of glib comments about the fact that he hasn't even read it. I think there's actually a lot of scholars that are sitting behind Axe work at the moment. I think what we need though and what is problematic is there seems to be this slightly frightened nature because there is debate. I mean I think in terms of what happened um, with the Hui led by the Māori King that actually that was a really positive thing to happen what is wrong with a whole lot of people coming together and discussing, actually, this is really important to us, let's fight for it? I don't see why we actually should be hiding from that, particularly in an MMP environment where people vote. I mean, well, it's difficult for you and I to say that when we haven't had the history that Māori have had in this country, and that's the thing. It's driven by a fear of gains being lost and further gains not being made. That well, it's a question of what those gains are, because... We know going into the last election that there was a lot of concerns about co-governance, whatever iteration do you believe of what co-governance means and doesn't mean, and how that been interpreted. So if you're a person that is fearful that co-governance is going to be taken away, maybe it's legitimate that it is taken away. Like, that is the debate we're having as a country, we that we don't want that. Future so, of the language, uh, health uh, disparities, we could go on and on and on, all of them yes, relevant to a new government's policies. And you've seen National come out very strongly and talk about that outcomes. They have talked about today, or they have talked about um, particularly health outcomes, education outcomes. That is what they focus on, taking up that John Key, for, um, I think, mantle. And so I think what that's what I worry about. The John Key mantle, <laughs> there that's, few of the National who'd love to have that back with the way things are unfolding. The, the, can I, can I say, like, I, I'd, be, I'd be very interested to know who the distinguished scholar is who believes that Seymour's proposal in the leaked paper that the treaty gave full chieftainship to New Zealanders over their, all New Zealanders over their, over their property as a reflection of the treaty. It's, it's just not in the treaty. It's a total misrepresentation. But anyway, we'll get back to the politics. But I want to just touch on one other thing that Shane Jones said in a very good discussion with Corin Dan this morning on Morning Report, which I would encourage people to go back and have a listen to. Uh, and this, I think, really does bear some relevance, along with the jurisprudence and everything else that's emerged over the last um, 50 years now. The, the uh, historic claims are, with some exceptions, very well advanced, almost done, right? Historic treaty claims. And for some years now, there's been this issue of contemporary claims and how... Um, that the, the treaty is applied and breaches of the treaty are applied in a in a contemporary context. And that was what Shane Jones was saying is something we need to grapple with constitutionally all of us. And he was taking exception to the idea that that might be happening in part of the community and not 
with everybody else. Ironically, that's what Māori are saying has happened with respect to the Treaty Principles Bill. And, and indeed, Chris Hipkins said at Ratana that Labour had done a bad job of taking the public with them. He and said I, it in I, an interview here and, and over I, co-governance and, and, and Nanaia Mahuta being left to front the whole thing You'll have heard itself. me bang on and on on this show over the mm. last couple of years about Three Waters, for example, and Labour in general on Māori issues, how Labour, I think, failed to give the public a coherent explanation of what they were doing, why they were doing it, and what they weren't doing. He said it, and in, the, he said it in the interview just before the election. Mm. Why did you have a so-called co-governance model, which, let's remind people, was going to be uh, multi-representation on the board um, that approved the was, membership uh, of the board of governors that would oversee the entities? Uh, that, and was, he finally, sorry, that was one aspect of the three waters okay, in terms of multi. There was okay, actually other factors as well. Okay, but... <laughs> The question was why, and he said because otherwise we would have claims that would make the foreshore and seabed look like a walk in the park. There has never been, never been an establishment of the nature and extent of Māori rights and freshwater. That was never said, never said at any time. So I think think Labour has to take a long, hard look at their failure on these issues, which has opened this up. But I think at the same time, these discussions we have and this debate we have that we were just mentioning – it's not all, you know, in the in the hallowed grounds of RNZ studio on the terrace among nice middle liberal, liberal, liberal middle class people. These are debates that are often nasty and racist, and Maori would be the brunt of it. And much of we've seen over the last few years, ever since the Heipuapua debate kicked off, we've seen an unfolding of I think I think we've seen racism emerge in our society in a way it hasn't been in recent decades. I think the lid, I think the scab's been ripped off. And I think we're seeing a populist moment that politicians are but taking advantage of. Argue, and so that is some the would argue that is the failure of political leadership, that things um, were skewed and were able to be subject to disinformation, misinformation, rather than confronting it head well, on think, and having the, everyone yeah, discuss it. And, and I think at the same time, I mean, I was hoping when Christopher Luxon became leader, he would take the John Key, Chris Finlayson approach and he would sort of maybe t- roll things back a little bit from where Labour had but kind of continue the, the drive that had been going. I think what's happened is he just kind of rode that wave quietly and didn't really engage with the politics of it, and we've ended up here with... OK. Well, let's talk about where we've, where we've ended up now. We've got the Treaty Principles Bill, which is beginning to become a bit of a farce, as the leaders of two parties, or not the leaders, I beg your pardon, in one instance it was the Shane Jones deputy leader, here's New Zealand first, um, appeared to come out in one direct a response to one direct question and saying, no, we will not be voting for this beyond select committee, and then next time they're asked have to walk it back, because it really is bordering on bad faith <laughs> to say we're not going to support something you haven't even heard the argument on within the parliamentary precinct. But nonetheless, all the signals are that that bill will not proceed past first reading. So that's one context. What are the other contexts where this is going to be debated one way or another? Well, I mean, it, it will unleash a debate where, I mean, Matthew Houghton wrote a good po- po- uh, column about this uh, over the, um, I think on Friday in the Herald where he talked about we're going to see, you know, polling on this. We're going to see a big debate. We, go- we may well find that a large number of Pākehā will quite like all this treaty stuff just to go away. And you might find that a large portion of Nationals vote, New Zealand First vote, actually quite likes the idea of rewriting the treaty principles and, and having a free market individualism kind of interpretation of the treaty. That might put National under pressure. That might put New Zealand First under pressure from their own voters. I mean, we've seen in the UK what's happened to the Conservative Party there with the rise of um, 
Reform UK and how that's driven the Tories in the UK to the right. I think we we could see the same with National on this issue. So I, I do think I do think it creates potentially problems for National and New Zealand first. And while I think the chances of it proceeding beyond select committee are very low, I don't think it's zero. It clashes with the whole way Christopher Luxon has tried to portray himself. His problem at the moment is he's nowhere to be seen. Bridget, really. You know? Well, I think actually this is, and we've talked about it you know, end of last year, about what does a three-headed coalition government look like because we haven't actually had that before. And I think this plays out in two dynamics. One is, I think, for National, there's no doubt that this Treaty Principles Bill is a problem for them because it is just distracting from all of the things that they campaigned on that they want to, you know, cost of living and RMA reform and all the things they want to, you know, put forward as this is what they're doing to actually make the country more productive. So that is a distraction and it is a problem. But I think for them you can see a really clear um, strategy of distinguishing this is very much X bill. And I think the Friday move to give David Seymour the Associate Justice portfolio is a clear uh, indication of that. Because from a practical point of view, he's then instructing the officials directly. He takes that paper to Cabinet. He's the one that introduces it in the House. It gets it away from it being Paul Goldsmith being the national minister that actually needs to do that. So I think that was uh, you know, very much a reaction to that. And then I think the second thing, though, is the really interesting dynamic is what's going to happen with New Zealand First. We know at the moment that this is a coalition that's... you know, working quite well together, actually, because in terms of what they've managed to actually get done in the last sort of six weeks that they've actually been sworn in. But when they close to the next election, I think those New Zealand First Act, um, you know, rivalries will come back out. And both of them have picked up votes on treaty issues. Who's going to be sort of selling themselves as the one that has done the most? At the moment, it looks like New Zealand First has got the clear pathway through because they've got a programme of work. Act's bill could be dead by the end of the year. It may be prepared at that point to build itself a different, you know, focus I think, anyway. I think on, on the handing Seymour that portfolio of responsibility for the bill, I, I think it's a bit of a band-aid that, yes, in the short term means Paul Goldsmith and the national ministers can say, this isn't my bill, you need to talk to the minister responsible. I think, though, as Bridget says, that a minister has powers. Like, Seymour now has his hands on the machinery of government. He directs officials, he drafts cabinet papers, he has influence over the select committee process. It actually gives him power over it that National doesn't have now. Oh, it's still subject to cabinet. Like, and still yes. and the delegate the prime minister and it's delegated no, no, from the indeed, social justice. But, but, like. but the day-to-day mechanics of what paper goes to cabinet, what officials are, advice officials are getting that ends up getting leaked, these things are all relevant in government. The other point I'd make is that I think what I've never understood is why Luxon agreed to this. Um, I think any person... To become person, Prime Minister? Yeah, no, no, but like, I, I, I've, sat in, I've sat in coalition neg- negotiations before. Never for a three-way cabinet. Yes, I, well, not for a three-way cabinet, for a three-way government. And what I would say is anyone who saw themselves as a unifier and a leader with an agenda, if John Key had been in that position, I think would have said to act, I cannot govern New Zealand when this kind of sideshow and division is going on. You can have something else, but you're not having this. And I think if he had sense, he'll kill it now. He'll find out a way with Act to kill it. Because mm. I, I just think this is going to derail his agenda. And I, and I also think it's going to cause huge problems for Division for New Zealand and I think could tarnish his you know, prime ministership. It, it, comes, it comes back to his background experience also, dare I mention mergers and acquisitions, because this was the solution to not having a referendum. And what might have looked good in a coalition negotiation where you, when you haven't had 20 years in Parliament and in very deep and major New Zealand public policy, 
can come back and bite you on the proverbial. I, I think it does and come probably back to an, is I think right it does now. come back to an experience. I yeah. mean, I was here on the Monday after the coalition agreements were signed, and I said exactly how yeah. this would play okay. out. Well, let's see. We still to see how it plays out. Actually, it well, might be a roaring success. It we, might be a we, national we, conversation we where been, everyone makes progress. We have been seeing it for a few months now, and what <laughs> yeah. I'd say is, every time Luxon goes before the media, he's talking about um, treaty referendums and smoke free. Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about smoke free because you made the observation um, about the uh, associate minister. Same thing done with uh, the smoking controversy round two. We might dub it, which I'm trying to remember the status now because even listening to the interview, I was a bit confused. Where a minister ticked that she would like to receive information on possibly pausing excise tax increases and making it every three years rather than once a year. In other words, a, a less steep rise in, in um, excise taxes. Um, why? I know there's a long argument about the, the poorest and often Māori who are most prevalent in smoking paying with money they can't afford for an addiction they have. But why is she doing this? Well, I think just, and just a declaration first, that my firm does do some legal work for a tobacco firm, a very small amount, but nothing to do with this particular issue. But... What I actually, when I looked at this, is I actually just saw a new minister, probably with a huge pile of paperwork like they all did, a new minister who hasn't even been an MP before, probably ticked the box and didn't Why would the box be there? Because when you go into government, the officials put everything on the table about, okay, so these are all the possible options. They know New Zealand First has come in with an... And anti-smoke agent, I think that's probably the best way to put it, but they have come in with wanting to do lots of... Why was she given that delegation? Because they have come in with this as a somewhere that because, they want to because move. Because Shane Ritty did not want to explain that. I understand that. I understand he is a Māori GP. Of course. And he would not, I, I can imagine but he would not But my point is the fact that she was given the delegation indicates some policy measures that the health minister himself did not want anything to do with. I think to an extent, yes, but I think you've just got to be careful that we actually don't know that. I think there's probably an assumption that most people don't want to deal with um, tobacco and smoke-free because it's a very complex, hard area. But I think what needs, just to be put in a little bit of context here, is I think a little bit has been made more of the fact that she ticked that and then said, I didn't particularly ask for that. I think that's going to be happening a lot, particularly when you've got understaffed officers. Give her a little bit of benefit of the doubt, I think, around that particular thing. On in terms of the actual particular issue, yes, we know coming out of the coalition agreements that there's going to be a lot of movement in this space. She's going to have a lot in front of her plate. I bet she's paying a lot more attention than what she was when she was trying to get through that paperwork, I'm sure. Yeah, look, I, I personally don't get that worked up about excise on tobacco. I think when cigarettes are 45 bucks a pack, you've kind of maybe reached the limits of price pressure on people. But... The problem that Casey Costello has, and I think the government has, is that, you know, as I said with, with the Seymour situation, they've had a short-term band-aid. We don't want to talk about this. Let New Zealand First talk about it. And the way they've solved it is they've given New Zealand First control over the machinery of government that deals with smoking. And vaping. Which and is, vaping. Uh, and, so, yeah. and so now what you have is all advice on this and all policy programs on this and all cabinet papers on this will be going through Casey Costello. She'll be driving it. I've got no issue with Case Costello, but my point is, there is a, for better or worse, there is a narrative around New Zealand First and smoking. People are going to be OAAing it like crazy, and it's going to become a running sore, I think. Whereas what I think would have been better would be for national, maybe Ritty doesn't want to deal with it, give it to some other national minister, and they say, yes, there are a couple of things in the coalition agreement we've had to do, um, but now this is our agenda and we're in charge of it. National is no longer in charge of the smoke-free agenda, and okay. that's a problem for them. Government agreement to involvement in the Red Sea action being six, uh, do we call them, six New Zealanders. Uh, mm. Was this a necessary 
show of being part of um, uh, what shall we? What's the words we should use? Of, of supporting, yeah, a regional security arrangements. Yeah, in a situation where there is deemed to be uh, national interest for New Zealand and beyond, was it a daft move that's exposed us to uh, involvement in any way uh, with current Middle East conflicts? Your takes. I think it was pretty straightforward. I think it is part of our regional security um, arrangements. It is something that we do have to be cognizant of. That you know, and it's six, it's six people. It's a very small. It's mostly symbolic uh, gesture that we were asked to provide help, and we did. I think it's got a little bit overblown in terms of people have I think connected it too strongly to what's happening in Gaza and made it out that we're suddenly particularly picking one side there. I think that's quite separate in terms of whether or not we get involved, and I think that's where the debate has actually gone a bit lost um, in this rather than actually going actually here's a major issue happening in the Red Sea there is people you know let's not pretend that um, we're not fighting against very bad people and let's and so of course it's important to us in terms of regional security arrangements to be there I don't actually think it's that big a deal I don't want to overblow it and I'm not suggesting we organise a rally on parliament but I do think um, it's easier to get into these things than it is to get out of them and this is part of an ongoing civil war in Yemen, which is a proxy war in the region between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There is a link to the Gaza conflict. I mean, the Houthis, a, a nasty bad bunch of people, are doing this, they say, on behalf of the Gazans. And the US is leading this. The US is severely compromised over the Gaza situation. And New Zealand has tried to remain neutral throughout it and independent. And I think we do risk um, aligning ourselves in the eyes of the international community, and I think we do risk having ourselves involved in what could become part of a wider regional conflict. So I'm not saying that, there, that there's no never a case to be involved in these things, but I think they require a bit more thought and a bit more debate um, domestically, and they shouldn't be done on a whim, and that's my concern. If we do get back beyond the very important and formal start to the political year that is Ratana and Waitangi, but if National is able get back, to get back to the stuff it really wants to talk about, when will the crunch come with respect to public service um, fund uh, um, budget cuts, which I see reported are now being broadened beyond the original uh, agencies that were identified. And when are we going to get to the crunch decision around uh, whether the tax package is affordable and proceeds as planned? When do we hit the gnarly on the government's finances. I don't think we'll really hit the nally until we get those, the budget, um, because then you'll actually see how much they've actually been able to save and where they've been able to do that and how also I think a number of the commitments you know, are phased out over the, the subsequent years. So I don't think we're going to have that um, you know, debate or that kind of insight probably until then, but that actually is not very far away, which is a problem for the government in itself <laughs> in terms of that quite squeezed timeline to get to budget. I think just... Um, in terms of turning the narrative, that little point that you made before about going into wiretanging things, it's interesting that obviously the sitting this week, I think we saw just before Christmas, I think the government reached some of that narrative back a bit in terms of actually getting stuff through the House. I think this is the week that they actually need to demonstrate that, that they're actually getting progress on some of their, on some of their commitments beyond having this discussion about the treaty, etc. It is a point in which can they wrestle that debate back. I suspect that'll be derailed though over the next week with Waitangi. <laughs> um, look, I should, before I talk about the public service, I should declare my work does some media support for the PSA, um, though I don't personally. Um, look, 
It's interesting with the public service cuts, there was a very clear line that there were 24 agencies, 6.5% before the election, 6.5% reductions. We're now hearing that's going to be across the public service. We're now hearing some are going to have to do 7.5%. I guess I'd just say there's a pretty blunt tool. You do, you do find there'll be, there'll be agencies that can find those savings and they'll manage it. There'll be others where it's going to cause real cuts to services people expect. And I think it's a pretty blunt tool. I think National Promise line by line looking through the books, that's not happening. And I think what do you mean that's not happening? Well, they were like, it, I mean, every they, indication from every public servant I talk to is that is what they are doing. No, National's not going through it, though. They're, they're well, just saying the, to the agencies... The government. They're, no, they're just, <laughs> that's what they get to saying, do, they tell saying, them. No, but my point is they're not looking for waste themselves across the public no, service and, and finding pockets. They're saying, no, they absolutely are. I mean, so, sorry, it's actually incorrect. Can I finish my <laughs> sentence? Because I think you misrepresented what I'm saying. National presented it as if they would be going through the public service, looking for program by program and finding across the public service... You're saying one might be 8% my point is there might yeah. be some agencies where you can make 10% cuts, there might be yeah. somewhere cutting a dollar is going to have huge impacts. And what they've done is they've just done a blunt 6.5% mm. across their public service, which is going to lead to uneven outcomes. My, my, my next point, I guess, is I think that this all comes back to the, the original sin, I think, which was the tax cuts they could never afford. And this is, this is actually about just scrambling down the back of the couch and finding whatever money you can to pay for tax cuts they couldn't afford. And I also think some of the stuff around the culture war stuff they agreed with in the coalition agreements, I think some of that probably happened because it was free and they didn't have to pay any money for it. And so I think the tax cuts not being costed properly has continued to find create problems for National that they'll continue to have to deal with. I think, just, let's go back a little bit, just fact-wise, they are literally going programme by programme. I know that because I know many, many ministerial officers are overseeing that right now, is going that line so, by line. So they, and then... Yeah. And then that's the whole point is they've been told, they've told all of them that they need to come back with those savings. And they've, of course, they're going to have to make political decisions and important decisions about which service get cut and which not. And to say this is a reaction to the tax um, cut promise is a completely. Um, just ridiculous, frankly. This is a reaction to the huge blowout in public spending that we saw over the last six years. A 34% increase in the number of public servants for a decrease in public service outcomes. I mean, you can't pretend that all that money is worth it's being used I'll, I'll you make, know, personally to actually get outcomes. This is not a reaction to tax cuts. I'll, I'll this points. is a reaction to blown out spending and large fair spending by public departments because ministers allowed them to put in budget bids without a lot of detail. I'll make two points here. I'm not, I'm not, I think we could go on forever about yes, the, minute, the, the previous increases, <laughs> so we'll leave that. I'll make two points. One is that the reason I say it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the tax cut package is because it was literally announced as part of the tax cut package. Um, it's part of the back, back... But it's not the primary reason. Well, I mean, you could say that, but when it's announced as how they're paying the tax cut package, I think it's a fair comment. Okay. The, the second point I was just going to make is if they come back and say, we're actually not going to d- cut some departments, in fact, we're going to put increases for some departments and we have even bigger cuts for others, then I'll accept what you're yeah. saying. But as long as they're think, saying 6.5% across the board. I don't think many public service departments particularly want the finance minister t- turning up um, personally, but I take your point. The classic example is the clerk of the house and mm. the concerns around trying to find savings at the heart of our democracy. When you're actually underfunded already. Yeah, okay. We'll pick it up later. Thanks very much as always. Uh, That is Bridget Morton and Neil Jones.